Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. And welcome to the Hopcast, episode number 87. My name is Adrian Hobart. Um, And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Crime. Mysteries. Thrillers. And... Romance. (laughs) She actually almost said it. (laughs) That's, That's cat for suspense. Uh... Welcome to the show, and we've got a packed show this week, so we're going to uh, be rattling through the news a little bit, because we've got two guests. We do! I know, we're treated well, aren't we, today? We are, we are. Our uh, principal interview is with the wonderful Zoe Sharp, who is a a veteran crime writer. Well, she wouldn't like you to call her a veteran. Well, I mean, she's an experienced (laughs) and long, you know, she's been very successful for a long time uh, as a writer. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and uh, I mean... We're going to get the exciting uh, descriptions of how you can kill people with your bare hands, pretty much. Yeah, so especially when you're walking around in public and you're not expecting someone to attack you, she's given us some tips on what to do. Yeah. (laughs) Someone you don't want to mess with if if you ever sort of... Uh, yeah, I'm not basically. going to try and steal her boots then at the next crime festival. No, not at all, not at all. And our second guest is Eliza Chambers, who has been with us this week, helping us to record Silence by Jenny Ensor. We're doing a, a multicast production of this book because, quite simply, you just have to get the voices right for this particular title. It's not something that uh, I could uh, yeah, we stretch just felt, to do all the different voices. We just felt to appeal to the right readers, or the readers we're trying to appeal to, we wanted it to be more... Yeah, the, lead, the, yeah. the listenership. Yeah, the listenership. Yes, that's like the mothership. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> anyway, Eliza will be joining us as well. We're, we're taking you through some of the process that we've been going through this week as uh, she's been working with us. So, uh, lots to get in uh, to the show this week. And um, as ever, we talk about our working lives. It's been a it's been a really busy week with Eliza being here for we, one thing. Well, we published two books, and on we published Tuesday. two books. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I want to do that too often because that was that was from seven a.m. till about eight p.m. Absolutely manic. Yeah, on Tuesday it was. It was, and so congratulations to AJ Aberford for Bullets in the Sand, and also to Ray Sargent for her Deadly Friend as well. So uh, two more books for the Hobeck Stable. And Rachel was actually on the radio yesterday. Was she with Radio Gloucestershire? She wasn't was, it? and I listened in, and it was very good. Was. And Rachel's book has also um, been a bestseller in the last week. It has. In what category? Radio. Um, I can't remember the exact wording of the category, but it's related to books related to radio. Yeah. Because as a, a DJ, it features quite heavily. Yeah, there. that's that's very true. They, they do. Um, so it, it temporarily nudged down somebody who would have been broadcasting to Gloucestershire back in the 90s, Scott Mills. That's right. Yes. And yeah, so cause initially Scott Mills was number one and Rachel said to me, I'm never going to get above Scott Mills. And I said, you never know. And <laughs> lo and behold, the following day. <laughs> Scott Mills has had the most remarkable career. Uh, I could 
bang on about that. We haven't got time in this show. But uh, anyway, let's um, let's look at the news. Uh, your first story. Um, well, we've talked about what happened to poor Salman Rushdie in a previous podcast, haven't we? And um, now I'm not going to recommend this to any of our authors, mm. but it seems if you get stabbed in public, your sales rocket, because mm. that's what's happened to um, all of Salman Rushdie's um, output, apparently. The sales have just gone nuts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not the way you want to get publicity, is it? But look, we wish him a, 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 the best recovery that he can manage given the length of injuries. And I actually looked at the, you know, the, for news of his progress. And in fact, no one said anything recently. No, it's been really quiet, hasn't it? Which yeah. is always a worry. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, but uh, the the other uh, thing that is, is sort of pertaining to Salman Rushdie at the moment is people saying that, you know, it's time for the Nobel Committee to make him the, the, the winner of the Literature Prize as a result of this. Oh, okay. But this is he hasn't done anything to do with literature. No, I know, I appreciate what by being stabbed, he hasn't No, I know, I appreciate that, but you know, it's always about a body of work. Uh, okay. The Nobel Prize for Literature is not like a, a book prize where it's a reflection of the, the latest novel. It's the whole no. body of someone's work. And so people are saying in the circumstances the Nobel Committee should make a statement by making him the Nobel laureate for this year mm, i bet they don't though because oh, i bet they don't because no. they're, 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 they're you know they they tend not to be influenced by the zeitgeist exactly uh, yeah okay right well that's uh you know so i mean you know small compensation i suppose but uh yeah samuel rusty uh we wish you a, a speedy recovery the the other story we wanted to touch on is um the shortlist for the Fingerprint Awards, which is connected to Capital Crime, which is the big festival coming up in October, as if there wasn't enough festivals <laughs> for us to be excited about. Bloody Scotland just around the corner yeah. for us uh, next month. Now, Capital Crime Festival is co-organised by Goldsboro Books owner and agent David Headley. And uh, this year's shortlist for the crime novel of the year, 2021, is as follows. The Sanatorium by Sarah Pierce. 1979 by... Lovely Val McDermott. The Appeal by... The lovely, and soon to come on the Hobcast, we hope, Janice Hallett. Yes, we've got a promise twice now from her that she's coming on. <laughs> I haven't got a contact name, uh, email for her, though, but anyway. Slough House by former guest... McHeron. Yes, and finally, <laughs> Girls Who Lie by Eva Björk... I'm glad you didn't ask me or that. Whatever. <laughs> I, I, I nearly got it right. Uh, anyway, uh, so that's that's uh, that's good. I mean, it's interesting because Val and um, Janice have been e exchanging uh, compliments. Um, historical crime book of the year. Uh, you're going to be staggered to know that Abir Mukherjee, our oh, former guest our and former friend guest of the show, is. is also nominated he liked my for boots, the Shadows so of Men. He's my friend for life. Alongside by A Net of Small Fishes by Lucy Jago, The Shape of Darkness by Laura Purcell, Daughters of Night by Laura Shepherd, and A Comedy of Terrors by Lindsay Davis. So that's actually a really strong women's representation. Four out of the five. Yeah. Which is great. Uh, thriller Book of the Year, A Slow Fire Burning by Paula Hawkins. Dead Ground by everyone's favourite, M.W. Craven. <laughs> The Night She Disappeared by... Oh, that's Lisa Jewell. I've just read that. Yeah. Knife Edge by... 
a DJ. <laughs> I don't know. Scott Mills. No, Simon Mayo. <laughs> and last thing to burn by. Oh, that's Paula. No, it's uh, not. Will Dean. Will Dean. Uh, Will Dean. Lovely Will Dean. Oh, there you go. I thought you'd get a lovely in there. There you go. Uh, and congratulations to the debut book of the year nominees, uh, which include Abigail Dean for the book that was all over uh, Harrogate last I've year. I've read it. Girl A. Yes. Greenwich Park by Catherine Faulkner. Welcome to Cooper by Tariq Ashkanani. And um, How to Kidnap the Rich by Rahul Reiner. Uh, Reiner. And Edge of the Grave by Robbie Morrison, who we met last year at uh, Bloody Scotland. Do you know, when you said that and you gestured to me, to, I thought, I know that, I know that, but I couldn't think it was. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, been a, been, it's, it's been a staple of nominations and it won the debut prize at Bloody Scotland. Yeah. Um, and it's on your bedside table. It is, actually. Yeah, I haven't read it yet. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Robbie's a lovely guy and came through writing graphic novels and comics and has become a novelist. And it, his wife's lovely as well, so uh, we've, we've met her. So, uh, yeah, congratulations to them all. Uh, we're not planning to go to Capital Crime this year. Well, well we haven't been, have we? But, um, no. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's... It's one of those things. Any, I mean, if you live around London, great, get along, and it's got an incredible list of authors attending. But the truth is that staying in London just isn't worth the expense. No, in our view, we've, um, we've got to be picky to a certain degree. We could do we? we could do a day at Capital Crime, but I don't think there's anything that uh, particularly would be achieved by that. So I think we're going to give it a miss this year. To be perfectly honest. Which is a shame. But we are hoping to go to Sterling, aren't we? We haven't quite finalised the plans. Indeed. Well, we've got two of our authors appearing uh, at Bloody Scotland in the... What's the, the name? Spotlight. Crime in the Spotlight. Crime in the Spotlight slot, which is where you you know get a chance to read some from your book just before uh, you know, uh, someone... A talk by. Uh, a talk by an established mm. author goes on to the stage at the Assembly Rooms. So um, it's... Um, or the Assembly Hall, I should call it. It's been, uh, yeah, it's great for Jonathan Peace, who's going to be representing, um, uh, well, I'm not sure which of the, the two books is going to I'm be. not sure. No, I'm not sure. He's going to be reading from. Anyway, well done, Jonathan. And uh, Maureen Mayant as well, who is yet to be published by Hobeck, but is going to make an appearance as well. So yeah. we're looking forward to meeting her if we get up there. Um, that's that's sort of half a plan at the moment. But I love that idea. That's, that's one, one of the reasons why um, Bloody Scotland's one of my favourite festivals, because... Mm. They have these well-known names who, uh, rather than a panel generally, they talk about something related to their book and it's a bit more in-depth. But they also highlight up-and-coming authors in yeah. this way. They give them just a little slot, but, you know, it gives them a well, massive and, boost. And the fact is that, you know, when it comes to the signing after that particular talk, they will be sat alongside those authors who are selling the books. They can sell their own. And yeah. Waterstones will be stocking it during the, um, during the whole event. So... Uh, you know, it is it is a, a really good gesture, and um, you know who knows. Uh, you know, Jonathan Mark Whiteman appeared. Be, you know, obviously he was on the panel because uh, he was nominated for the debut prize uh, last year. You know, and Maureen. I mean, it, who's to say they're not going to be, uh, you know, headliners in the future? Yeah, in the very near future, we hope. Anyway, that's um, that's all our news for this week in terms of the wider publishing industry that we, that caught our eye. Uh, let's get into our big interview of the week, oh, which Zoe. is with Zoe. Zoe, and we've been trying to arrange this for weeks. Actually, we we met her for the first time at uh, Crime Fest in Bristol, 
which she was moderating a panel and did an absolutely astonishingly good job. She did. She was brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we'll talk about that actually in the interview. And then we um, we touched base again at Harrogate. We did. Right at the end. And then she she caught COVID, so we had to put off our podcast with her after Harrogate. And then finally we managed to fix the time and the date and we did it. Well, I think um, after you've listened to this interview with Zoe, you'll, you'll realise that it's been a remarkable journey in her life to the point of being such an established author because it was uh, an un... Well, how would I describe it? Uh, an unconventional education and start to life. Yeah, but one that suited her perfectly, I think. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 it's been the making of her in many ways. Let's speak then to Zoe Sharp. Well, we're delighted that Zoe Sharp is joining us on the Hobcast Book Show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, we've been meaning to do this for weeks, but for various reasons, not least COVID, uh, we've had to postpone occasionally. In fact, I'm now kicking myself that we didn't actually have this conversation in Harrogate because we you were, were both there. there. Yeah, you and were. I kept nudging you and going, Look, Zoe. <laughs> we're speaking to her on Tuesday. Why don't we just speak to her here? But we, you know, here we are. We have finally made it. So thank you very much for joining us. And um, we've been wanting to speak to you since we saw you. It was at Bristol, wasn't it? It was at Bristol at Crime Fest. And you were uh, emceeing a, a panel and doing an absolutely stellar job. Um, <laughs> you know, it really blew us away. So that's why we really wanted to speak to you. What do you, I mean, what do you get out of a, a, a thing like that when you're, when you're channel, uh, you're uh, comparing a, a panel? Um, I know they always say you're supposed to be a participating moderator, but yeah. I find it tends to work better if you just try and keep everybody else talking and, you know, it's more like refereeing sometimes rather than comparing. Um, but if if the moderator talks about themselves too much, it, it really doesn't come over well. So I tend to find it's better because when you break down the time you've got, I mean, there used to be hour panels, they're now 50 minutes mm. and you've got to have Q&A at the end and you've got to introduce everybody and have individual, you've got sort of like, you know, three or four minutes to do each thing. And if anybody goes off on a long stream of consciousness, it, it just takes over the, the, the whole panel. So just trying to keep everything moving and keeping a track of the, the time. But I do enjoy it. I've I've observed and been on some panels that were horrendously moderated and it kind of inspires you to want to do a, a, a good job for the people who are there. I'm glad you said that because we one of our authors was involved in a, a moderated panel at Crime Fest and precisely what you were talking about happened that the the chair took over. And actually answered all of the questions he was asking our author. Uh, so it was, uh, yeah, it was a challenge. And, and given the author in question is a relatively quiet person and needs time to sort of get revved up, um, to be cut off just before you're about to answer what the book's about uh, isn't, <laughs> isn't easy. Um, but it, it must also be a great way of connecting with people that you perhaps haven't met before in the community i know it's a very close-knit thing and that if you go to a few festivals as we have started to do you gradually build this network and eventually you'll know everybody there but um it must be wonderful to to, to have that opportunity to to be asked to do this and then build those connections yes and it is a it is a very kind of solitary business writing 
So you end up sitting at, at home in your pyjamas a lot and the <laughs> opportunity to get out and actually be sociable and mix with people is, uh, is always enjoyable. I find so I, I I missed it while I wasn't going to conventions because obviously you know over Covid nobody's been going anywhere um, so it's it's been lovely to be able to get back out there and and see people I haven't spoken to in often for sort of two or three years because of the way it's gone so we, we spend a lot of time in our pajamas too don't we <laughs> you're only just out of yours yeah I've got wet hair because I, I just come out the bath. <laughs> But that is that's one of the joys. I mean, you know, essentially authors are working from home if they're full time. And uh, yeah, um, as they often say on the self-publishing show, it's it's a business. Self-publishing and and that sort of side of things is done in your pajamas. Um, There's no need to uh, to dress up, although occasionally and one author turned up on our doorstep on one occasion, Malcolm, uh, to (laughs) to to give us a very, very generous present presentation. Uh, framed thing of the two covers of the first two books that we published with him uh, and I you just were got, in your pajamas, I was in my pajamas <laughs> I was at the dentist I didn't know because he just wanted to surprise us yeah <laughs> and it's 11 o'clock in the morning and I'm in my pajamas so I look to right state but anyway that's a that's another story um <laughs> yes, Zoe, the days you sort of get get inspired and you're sitting with your laptop still in bed are the days when you know the courier knocks on the door at lunchtime and... oh gosh yeah well, you should have seen me running with the bins this morning in my dressing gown. <laughs> <laughs> we heard the lorry go past. <laughs> and we had, you know, we, we we gambled or Becky gambled that we would get the bins out on the return when they come up the lane, back up the lane. And they stopped. I couldn't believe it. I know. I want to, I want to post a message somewhere to say, Staffordshire Borough Council, your bin men are lovely. I will find a way. <laughs> <laughs> now, sorry, let's, let's, let's kick into your um your writing career because um the one thing i said to rebecca when we were reviewing your list of books on your website going blimey she's written a lot <laughs> <laughs> you're prolific um and i mean perhaps that's a, a you know a, a mistake to make that assumption because you know you have a lot of books out but is that a recent thing or is this a, a you know a decade-long career plus well, I actually started earning a living from writing in 1988. Wow. Oh, when I did my GCSEs. <laughs> stop it, yeah, thanks for that. And I failed my A-levels that first time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I started writing non-fiction, so I've actually been, been uh, not had a proper job for some years, and my first novel came out in 01, so I, I seem to have slowed down much to my annoyance um but yes i've been i've been writing quietly in the background for a lot of years that's it i mean that's still a heck of a body of works you say you've slowed down is it now one book a year or longer than that perhaps well this latest one seems to be taking me longer but um it's it's usually a book a year so I would like to try and increase that speed, but um, the more I try and increase the speed, the slower I seem to get. So mm. yeah. it seems that like writing is one of those things that you you can't you can't impose a schedule on. Sometimes you know, people, I know people seem to be able to do well, it, but I, I don't I know how it, they do it. It depends on their mindset, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> you know, I think that um, you know many people can you know set themselves a challenge of a certain number of words a, a, a day. Clearly, the, those authors who are managing five or six books a year at the moment. Are doing that successfully whether or not they've actually got an eye on the on the overall quality another question 
Um, but what what do you think? This is a very we're going in deep now. Sorry about this. Um, which is you know what what has do you think slowed your process down at this stage of your career? Um, at this stage, I've had health problems the last um, really probably about nine months, which has slowed things down. I had a um, an eye problem. Mm. Uh, which doesn't help you using a computer and a keyboard. No, quite. The rest of it. Um, but uh, I think when I was still working full time, you tend to write faster. Everybody I know who has sort of given up the day job to write has slowed down their work rate, which seems ridiculous. But when you only have a small slice of time in which to write, it tends to really focus you on on the writing. So yeah I've heard that before yeah because yeah. you're 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 almost ultra conscious of time aren't you I mean there was one guy I was listening to a podcast I think it was the self-publishing show and he was American and he said he would be washing the dishes and dictating the next chapter of his book while he's washing the dishes because he... uh, I, I I've tried the dictation thing it's uh well I they say you have to persevere and there is technique there are techniques to sort of get your fluency up but I just found that impossible because not least when you got the transcripts off dragon nuance dragon software it it bore no relation to what you'd actually said and then you're thinking well i'm going to spend two hours just putting in the right words here but they've misinterpreted it but anyway i i digress well that's interesting because i had that feeling too when i was at the bbc um which i left just over two years ago in the last 18 months i started writing and that's all i seem to be able to do i mean it, it became a one of the reasons why we parted company was the fact that I just had a compulsion in my downtime to write while I was at my desk. So I took my lunch at my desk and I was writing and everyone could see I was beavering away on the keyboard, but they took that as, as being a, you know, being the manager, you know, that I was basically moonlighting. Um, They had no empathy for it at all. So yeah, I, I, I would find myself writing on the train and Google docs with my thumbs, you know, and trying to correct things as I go and watch watching the, the internet drop out as we go through a tunnel or something like that and losing the text. So yeah, I can, I can certainly appreciate that, but let's, let's look at your, your, the early start to your career. Cause I, uh, your website is fascinating. It, 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 it poses so many questions. I've got to ask giving up formal education at the age of 12. Uh, we were both looking at each other and going, how, how did that happen? And <laughs> explain kind of thing. Uh, well, some, some people thrive in a, in a formal school, uh, atmosphere and some people don't and I'm afraid I was one of those people who didn't and I was lucky in that I was able to um, leave school and uh, nominally do correspondence courses from home um, and I think the regulations now are a lot a lot tighter on these things uh, but nobody even came to see where I was or what I was doing I think for 12 months um so and then I got to about 15 and thought right I I, I ought to go out and get a job now <laughs> and, and that was about it um I remember having a discussion with a a, a group of, of retired academics uh, a while ago and they said uh, you know and what what's your degree in more or less and I said <laughs> yeah, well yeah. I'm I'm afraid I'm a bit of a failure of the educational system. And they said, oh, do you mean you took your degree late? And I said, oh, no, God. that's not quite <laughs> So, um, yeah. But I have so, a fascination with words, and I always have had, and I love the derivation of words. And, you know, you just, uh, 
left to my own devices with a dictionary, I get hopelessly sidetracked. So I used to read the dictionary in the toilet when I was a teenager. Yeah. I kept a dictionary in the toilet and I would look up words. Uh, do you know what? I, this, is, this is a sort of round the table confession on this. I did too. Uh, not, not so much the toilet, um, but my, I had a friend who was super mega bright and ended up with, you know, double first from Oxford and all that sort of thing. For some reason, I used to, you know, I used to dovetail nicely socially with all the, the really brainy kids, even though I was academically completely useless um, because of attention deficit disorder. So I, I I couldn't apply myself to do the work. I mean, sometimes I used to pay them to crib the notes. But and I remember my, my friend Andrew, um, he used to, yeah, he had uh, volumes of, of dictionaries and would work through them. And then on his wall, he had about a dozen words he was going to memorise to bring bring up his word power for the day. Yeah, I, I, I did stuff. try that, actually. But my brother, older brother and sister, of course, completely ripped me apart for being so geeky. But <laughs> No, it's, it's it, but I think that's that's telling isn't it i mean i think that you know for all three of us who work in books this is this has always been a motivation well that, that's fascinating so in terms of that first job what was it and, and getting into into the world of work um well i i learned to do uh, astro navigation i was brought up uh, living on a boat yeah um this was I in Morecambe bay yeah uh, yes, there was a, a little marina in in uh, in Morecambe Bay, um, and I lived on a boat there from when I was about seven upwards. Wow. Um, and I I learned to do astro, so I did some crewing for people and boat delivery jobs and all that kind of thing. Yeah, so it was uh, that that was fun. Fantastic. Your photojournalism career that, that that followed. Tell us about that. That was in the in the motoring press, right? Mm. Uh, yes, I, I had an interest in classic cars. My first car was a Triumph Spitfire, which I took apart and put back together again, mainly Fantastic. out of necessity, I have to. I have to. <laughs> yeah. um, and that got me into the local classic car club and I started writing for the classic magazines uh, and, that, and that became a career. I mean, I went full time and was writing for the magazines and very quickly my editors were saying, could you just send us some photographs to go with these words? So I, I borrowed a camera and taught myself photography. And eventually I love that. ended up yeah. sort of segueing into just really, once I started writing the books, I was then really just doing the photography side. That's, that's yeah, that's that's great. And um, I I had a Triumph 2000, my first car. Mine so. was a Fiesta van. <laughs> just, just putting that in there. And yes, by the time I got it, um, you know, I had to do bodges on the, on the windscreen wiper. So I had a walking stick. Um, there's a quarter pane on the old Tri- Triumph 2000, uh, which you could open. It was my grandfather's and grandmother's car. And um, <laughs> so the, the the windscreen wipers, I was on the M4 one time and, and it started getting stuck. It would work for about half a dozen wipes and then it would sort of get halfway up. And, and so I used to swing this walking stick out through the quarter pane. Oh, my God. Uh, while I'm driving along, just to nudge it <laughs> to get it going again. And you were never pulled over? No, no, no. I mean, I, I wrote the, the poor car off on London Bridge in a major, major collision. Um, okay. When I, 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 I did my attention deficit thing and looked out the window to, at HMS Belfast oh, and noticed no. the stack of static traffic in front H- of me. Yeah, HMS Belfast is worth looking at. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. that's crashing a classic car though. no it wasn't no it was that was quite some shunt um anyway uh 
it, it, it's it's a fascinating world the, the classic car thing and 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 it continues to grow in popularity and i've been obsessed with watching richard hammond's latest show where he set up a you know he's bought this business this and it's called it the smallest cog and he's doing up cars uh with a state-of-the-art paint um facility and these old boys from the from the Cotswold to do up these cars and it's just fascinating just how much that continues and there are more e-types on the road now than there were in 1964 it seems i mean it's it's extraordinary is there any do you still have a passion for classic cars do you have one uh not a classic anymore i i had three or four spitfires um i had a brief brief brush with the lancia monte carlo oh right okay um but let us not speak of that um (laughs) And uh, but I've always liked convertible cars, so I still mm. drive a soft top. I'm afraid. Mm. So I can see that. But you like bikes as well. I mean, we're talking about motorbikes here. <laughs> you can yes. tell we've done there, a little bit of research. There's an amazing. <laughs> there's an amazing uh, publicity still. Yeah. A stride. <laughs> well, I, I knew it was a triumph, but I wanted to know more about it because I was trying to judge what engine size that was. That looked pretty meaty. Uh, that was uh, um, a, a street triple, which was a six seventy five. Yeah, I said six fifty, so I wasn't far off. Oh, I, was, I just what, said it was a bike. <laughs> <laughs> what, an amazing machine. We've got to get you together with uh, our author Ali Morgan, who's also she's a bike bike mad. And, and Terry Nixon too. And uh, her husband is very well known in the bike community. Yes, I think Mary Hannah is a is a, a biker as well. So, uh, well, I. This should be like a subset of crime authors who also like bikes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it would be quite appropriate to have a chapter, really, wouldn't it? Yeah. uh, Yeah. Crime author bikers. I think you should do it as a real statement arriving at Harrogate sometime. Oh, you could do it all together. Riding past (laughs) the the one, you know, the lovely bloke on security. They're always really charming, aren't they? The ones who who now guard the, the grounds. Uh, but yeah, riding up. Well, riding up and doing in, that in, turny thing that bikers in, do. Yeah, <laughs> doing a doing a doing a donut in front of the old Swan, where all the authors tend to gather, don't they? Just outside the bar, <laughs> and outside the tent. And then Wait. take your helmet off and just shake your head. Yeah, you know? that would be. <laughs> yeah, so it does, cool. doesn't work when it's this short. You just end up with it all stuck all over the place. People never no, I, look. I'm, you know, you, you always see them, they take the helmet off and do this, and they're all perfect. Yeah. What happens to the imprints of the bike the helmet on your face right. and all the rest of it that real bikers actually have? Yes, yeah, and so, the sweat that's built up and all that. That romantic image, then, is not true? Sadly. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> that would be a great image. Um, and we'll come up on BMX I, bikes. I always ask, I always ask uh, journalists who become writers, because I, that's my background in terms of broadcast journalism. Just how much of a benefit having that former discipline, you know, having that experience is as a writer of fiction. I mean, it takes some transition, doesn't it? Because it's a different, it's a different thing. But at the same time, it's the number of words you can get down and that the productivity and the flow that you can create. Does that has that helped you? Uh, it has. It's also, I think it's harder to write fiction because you're telling your own story rather than somebody else's. Mm-hmm. When you write nonfiction, it's somebody else's story and you can't, you can't be told, well, this isn't dramatic enough or the, or because it's somebody else's story. And you're, all you're doing is, is providing a conduit for that story to tell it in the most interesting and, 
and easiest way possible. But when it's your own story, that's much harder. But it does teach you to take criticism and not be too sort of precious about what you do. Um, I mean, I've had stuff ripped to shreds by magazine copy editors purely because it wouldn't fit the page. So they'll have yeah. to part to get it to fit. Um, and I used to uh, s- submit stuff. I only did, after the first article I ever wrote, I only ever did stuff on commission. I didn't do anything on spec. And so I knew that the piece would appear in the magazine, but often I wouldn't see it. In fact, I would never see it between submitting it and getting the finished article printed, you know, too late to do anything. And sometimes you would you would wince at what they've done with it. Mm. Um, Yeah. So you just you just said that's the nature of the game and on you went. So it's meant that, you know, if editors say we really think you should hack this about and do other things with it, I will take all that on board a lot more easily, I think, than some people who haven't come from that journalistic background where you expect to have things uh, messed about with, basically. Yeah, I think that's that's a very fair point. I, it's It's an extraordinary... I think, I mean, I think probably in print it's more extreme because the power of the word is, yeah. you know, is sacrosanct. Is that, is that and, every word is important. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Everything's been, you know, has to earn its keep, doesn't it? Uh, in broadcasting, it, it, you know, it's, it's actually you're writing shorter pieces because, yeah. you know, a one minute news report is a maximum 180 words if you work on the basis that you every three words is one second. So if you've got one minute of the program, the most you can get your story in is 180 words. And uh, yeah, then so essentially most of the great TV writers then allow themselves only 90 words because they'll let things breathe. Um, You know, so so there might be some sound of someone talking or something like that, which tells the story far more effectively than jabbering over the top of it. Um, So that was always my discipline was trying, okay, can I do this in 90 to 100 words? Um, He's good uh, at blurb writing. Well, so, as a result, yeah. So what, I think what so. we tend to do is I will write the blurb and give it to him and tell him to work his magic. And, and he does. And he'll, he'll summarise it. Yeah. And, and I'll read it again. I'll think, that's so good. <laughs> yes. It's, but, it's an art also. People assume, I think, if you write, you can write anything. It's, it's yeah. like people asking when I was still working as a photographer, oh, can, can you do wedding pictures? Yeah. <laughs> absolutely not it's an utterly different skill you're approaching it from a completely different viewpoint and it's like saying if you're a journalist you can automatically be a novelist well the two don't necessarily um it's useful to do I mean I also did um some copywriting I wrote press releases so all sorts of different aspects of writing um that are just keep honing the skill and it's all trying to tell a story as you said in as few words as possible really yeah yeah um, and because I tend to skip read when I'm reading do you yeah Therefore, me too yeah you know you your eye darts down the page looking for the relevant points and it it has an advantage in that I can read a book more than once and get more out of it than I did the first time because you think, oh, I don't remember that bit. <laughs> um, but also it means you tend to write trying to avoid the bits that you know you would skip when you were reading it. 
Yeah, mm. yeah. No, that's interesting. I, I, I've yeah. always envied people who can skip read. I, I, I can't. I, well, I, I, I can read really fast if I'm, if I'm really into a book. I will speed up and speed up and speed up till I race through it. <laughs> I'm, I'm monopaced, and it's, it, it's apparently being left eye dominant makes you read it one word at a time, and you can't skip and take the take the info in. So, it's, 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 it's a bind when you're a publisher. Believe me, you can't yeah, get so through most, the manuscript most of these file. books are me, I think. <laughs> yeah. So let's um, let's talk about your fiction then. And uh, your main series is Charlie Fox. And, and, tell, and I, I, I just love, um, well, I mean, it, it's oft quoted, but what Lee Child oh, yeah, said yeah, as yeah. so a preface to your uh, first box set, um, which is is terrific. I'm trying to find the words now and I can't find it. But anyway, um, how he, he if he was a woman, he'd like to be you. <laughs> and if Jack Reacher was a woman, It'd be they'd be Charlie, Charlie Fox. Charlie, yeah. So how much fun is it to write her and, and, and create her? Yes, it was it was a lot of fun to to create Charlie Fox. And don't forget that I started sort of playing around with this character sometime in the 90s. Yeah. And there weren't the same number of um, very capable female protagonists then. Um, and particularly not in the sort of towards the thriller end of the crime genre. So when I couldn't find what I was, what I wanted to read, you resort eventually to writing it yourself. Yeah. Um, and particularly when I was reading thrillers, you know, I read all the classic stuff, Alistair MacLean and Jack Higgins and Frederick Forsyth. And most of the female characters were kind of there to, to either be the hero's love interest or scream in a firefight or tend the wounded or fall over and need rescuing. And I got a bit fed up with that. So it's always bugged me in some ways that you have to describe uh, the kind of character I write as a strong female heroine. Well, you wouldn't say, you know, Reacher is a strong male hero because it's almost taken as red. Yeah, yeah that's so, interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? And Why I tried not to, to make, that? Uh, as, as the Americans put it, a guy in nylons. You know, right. she, she's still very much a female character, but um, she no longer has that sort of victim element to her. She's learned to go beyond that. Mm. And in terms of keeping that, I mean, you know, what, what, what you've reached, what, 14 books now, is it? Uh, yep, 14 and still going. People have <laughs> said, you know, you haven't stopped. I mean, no, I'm just, you know, been distracted by by other books. But yeah, I'm planning to continue Charlie's journey. Well, that must feel great, though, when people are almost saying, come on, when's the next one? It, I, it must be a bit like people who, who spend, you know, weeks planning and then and then all day cooking a huge Christmas dinner and it's gone in. 20 minutes yeah <laughs> and people are saying what's for dessert yeah you know? exactly oh I get um, that all the time in this house yeah that's what true can I eat now <laughs> or it's 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 like um I always think of a novel as like planning a wedding or something and then you know there's that crushing disappointment once you hand it over it's all over oh and I mean? you're walking around and there's all the debris from the <laughs> night before yeah <laughs> that kind of thing but that's um I mean t- but 14 novels and, and and continuing um how difficult has it been to to keep that fresh uh, to give her new things to 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 face uh to combat to to uh, new challenges to keep her fresh well i made a decision very early on in the series when you write a continuing character you either have to make the decision to keep them static 
and unchanging. Yeah, like James Bond, yeah. James Bond, um, Reacher, you can read the books in any order. Yeah. And, and it's you, won't, it, 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 you know, the character doesn't really change significantly. Um, a lot of the Spencer books, I love the Robert B. Parker Spencer books. And after the first few, he stopped mentioning that he was a veteran of the Korean War and just kept him, you know, in, in cryogenic stasis, more or less. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he, he didn't change from one book to the next. Um, and that's great from a reader's perspective in that you don't have to read the books in order. But from an author's perspective, I wanted to have this character constantly learning from the experience and taking a personal journey as much as a professional one. So she goes from it's 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 made the series in effect be in two halves because the early books she's teaching self-defense. Um, she's looking at it very much from an amateur perspective. And in the later books, she becomes a professional bodyguard. So she's working on the inside of the, um, the close protection industry. Um, and in the last book, she's um, the, the time I did, or the latest book, I should say, not the last one. Um, she's, you know, she's no longer in that industry. So she's still trying to find a place outside that industry. But nevertheless, the, the idea of protecting those weaker than herself is, is always been a continuing thread. And I wanted, it's, it's very difficult when you write a female character who has the capacity for violence. Either they are seen as a sort of, you know, ice-cold assassin or a deranged serial killer. or And I wanted to have somebody who was basically you would pass in the street without looking at them twice. But if somebody crosses that line with her, she, she can and is prepared to kill. And that was a very interesting psychological sort of um, uh, juxtaposition for that character. Um, and she struggles to cope with that, the, the aspects of her own personality. Uh, and I wanted the violence to have consequences. Mm. Mm. Can't just sort of be knocked flat in one book and recover with one mighty bound. So, you know, I, I had her in, in for, be on crutches for, the, for most of one novel uh, because I wanted to take that, that physical resilience away from her. And, and put her in, in uh, a lot more physical danger as well as, as any other kind. So it's, it's very interesting to constantly throw, they say you're supposed to put your character up a tree and throw rocks at them. And, and I've thrown rather a lot of rocks at Charlie <laughs> over the years. I love um, She's going to come knocking on your door and say, excuse me, can I have a break? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll keep it bolted, I think. <laughs> Um, yeah absolutely it's, it's been very interesting because I mean I love doing the research for, yeah. for the books and I learned an awful lot of self-defense and I've I've done competition shooting and, and all the rest of it so it gives you a different mindset of the way you look at things and even things like riding a motorcycle if you drive a car on the road you know if you have an accident the likelihood is you're going to walk away from it airbags seat belts you know all the mm -hmm. crumple zones and everything else if you have an accident on a motorcycle the chances are it's going to hurt yeah and yes. and the number of people on the road who say oh sorry mate i didn't see you 
you know, when I rode a motorbike regularly because I, I've had to sell my bike a few years ago, my back will no longer stand it. Oh. Bikes. Um, I worked on the theory that I was invisible and everybody else on the road was out to kill me. And if you worked on that theory, you, you know, you looked at people and thought, no, you are going to pull out because they probably haven't seen you. So it's a similar mindset to the way Charlie looks at the world. You know, something is going to happen that she has to be prepared for it all the time, mm. because mm. that's the nature of working in close protection. You're always constantly working with the what if. So it, it makes writing the character very interesting, but it makes you very aware of your surroundings all the time as well. Mm. That That is, I mean, I, I, Take your point. I mean, I, as a cyclist, yeah, I was going to say as on a and cyclist, off cyclist, I, I the same approach. That. The same. I mean, I used to commute across London from King's Cross to Television Centre up yeah. Euston Road, and yeah, I mean, the whole time it was there were two two approaches. I mean, there was there was the one that you describe of you know I, I just imagine everyone hadn't seen me, but also to make them see me, I would take a very defensive position on the road in the sense that yeah, they couldn't get round me. In certain situations where I'm approaching a junction, I, you know, I'm not going to just go into the double yellow lines and hope you don't crush me. Um, but equally, you know, if I'm behind a bus, I'm not going to go down the side of that bus. That's oh, craziness no, 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 or a lorry. Yeah. I'm going to stay behind it. Mm. And, uh, you know, all sorts of approaches, but it just changes your mindset. And as a driver... Oh. I, I, I'm 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 always taking that approach. So Same I think, here, yeah. You know, I, I I one of the things I hate most in this country, if I can, is this cyclists and motorcyclists are in pain on the pain in the ass and you know, and all this sort of stuff. The 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 majority view of treating us like I actually think to pass your driving. Don't, they don't pay their road tax and all this sort of stuff. Well, we do because we're all, usually all drivers as well. To pass your driving test, I think you need to spend a month on the bike. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> if I was Prime Minister, a lot more aware of particularly things like road conditions. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've had the heat wave at the moment, and then yesterday it rained. Mm. And I was aware because I, I had to go out in the car for the first time in a fortnight, probably. Yeah. Um, I was aware that the roads were likely to be that dust and then the rain on it, it's going to make yeah, and the oil and like, the like ice. <laughs> Um, yes. In fact, yes, they, they call it in Florida when it's rained hard after uh, because they get so little rain. Mm. They call it Florida ice because the dust becomes slick. Yeah. And people are not aware of road conditions or, you know, anything like that. It's uh, not at all. No, no, I, I quite agree with you. Inside their little, little bubbles. Well, we were playing tennis yesterday, weren't we? And it started to rain. Mm. And as soon as it started to rain, we were slipping everywhere. Yeah, it yeah, was we had to come like, off. Yeah, court. ice. It was like yeah, an ice rain because of the dust. You're absolutely <laughs> right. No, um, so that's uh, it's fascinating. I mean, you, you were saying about the psychology of having a character who kills a woman who kills. Um, when you're writing that, does it rub off on you? <laughs> I, 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 I say I, no. I say this. I say this advisedly because, as I've described on this podcast before, as a narrator, I have done multiple battle scenes. Uh, in uh, set in the Roman Empire, where you know bodies are flying everywhere and bits of gore, and you know it's just constant. And I come out and I'm bellicose. demanding his dinner. I'm bellicose <laughs> for about three days afterwards. I get so emotionally wrought into the into the situation. You know, I've been shouting and trying to fight for my life and all this sort of stuff uh, for three days. You know, for whenever how long I've been in the studio. But does that have an impact on you at all? Oh, it's entirely autobiographical. 
<laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, that, yeah, I can tell. Yeah, <laughs> it's a well, dead body behind her. <laughs> I do um, sort of self-defense demonstrations and things. I've done quite a lot of them at places like Batchicon and and uh, and that kind of thing, and mm. making improvised weapons out of everyday objects and and uh, all yeah. that sort of stuff. But most people are very blinkered when they're walking about and I don't like you know walking along the street and having people behind me and so it it does rub off to that extent Mm. but I think that's that's sensible yeah I agree something you put out as a sort of a, a a vibe that people pick up on I've uh, I remember even going to um, watch it. I think it was the Reduced Shakespeare Company years ago. And I was sitting right on the front row and they picked on the people on either side of me and left me alone. <laughs> and I just sat and looked at them and they went, no, no, we'll not we'll, asking we'll... her. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, see, I'm the sort of person who always gets picked on in those comedy shows. Mm. It's happened to me two or three times. Really? Yeah. They pretty... always pick on me. But... I never I never get picked on. I don't know why. Well, you've got the same sort of look, I think. You're still <laughs> fighting the Romans, you see. Well, yeah, maybe. Or I do my sort of... I put on the sort of Ray Winston death stare or something like that, sort of... Uh... <laughs> yeah, but there is certainly... There is a kind of uh, a mindset when you're walking down a street, you think, you are not going to mess with me or I will make it hurt. Mm. And people do... You know, give you a yeah. wide worth, which is which is very useful. Are, are you <laughs> like me? I mean, I, I, you know, when we're out in a, as a group, the, the the core family here in this in the in the Hobeck barn, five of us, I spend a lot of time steering people around. Well, they, that's because I, I haven't got much of a sense of no, nor do your boys physical really space. No, they don't either. And I'm always steering, you know, people out of the way of things coming their way or stopping them on traffic you do it to me all the time i do i do because i'm 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 just that i'm a constant radar going he'll take my arm i'm sure it's come from cycling you'll take my arm and i'll think why is he taking my arm and then there's suddenly this woman behind me with a trolley (laughs) about to steam (laughs) into you absolutely right yeah no it's 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 a it's a it's it's a benefit and it's a curse as well i think sometimes i mean i feel like i'm 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 am i the only person paying attention to what's going on around us kind of thing in a word, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> now you talked, you mentioned that uh, you know clearly Charlie is, is is your core series and has, has has been the bulk of your fiction work, but you have new series as well, uh, which you've launched recently. So t- tell us about those. Uh, well, I I started uh, a more sort of um, crime thriller based series set in the Lake District. Um, which features a sort of a partnership between um, a female CSI and a, and a, a male, fairly low-ranking detective. Um, because I, I keep thinking that all these sort of, you know, detective chief inspectors who were out, they would be stuck in the office totally. doing budget um, meetings yeah. rather than going out into the field and asking people questions. So I wanted to keep him fairly low-ranking. But when I wrote the first one in that um, series called Dancing on the Grave, I found I was as interested in what was happening behind the eyes, if you like, of the the, the villain of the piece and mm. um, uh, the some of the, the other characters. 
so it ended up being as much from their perspective as it was from from the the law enforcement perspective and i continued that into the the next book uh, because the the first thing that happens in the in the second book in in bones in the river which is set it's kind of set in the lake district but not the sort of very touristy it's more towards the eastern side of the lakes yes. and i set um the second book at appleby horse fair because oh, yeah. i lived in appleby for some years right and the annual horse fair is the biggest in europe it's the biggest gathering of travelers and gypsies um in as i said in, in in Europe and about yeah. 40,000 visitors and um, participants arrive in the town and some of the locals are delighted to see them because you know they spend money and and others think it's Horrified. it's trouble and they shut up shop and go away and 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 treat it as an enforced holiday but I also, when I lived there, learned that people locally regarded it as a very good time for settling scores because you could get your own back on the people who'd annoyed you and blame the gypsies. Uh, so there was an element sneaky. of this, and I thought, well, that is ideal as a setting for a, that's awesome. for a yeah. novel. Um, and almost the, the first thing that happens is you see somebody who runs someone down in his car and makes that decision not to, to to come clean and the whole of the rest of the book is is sort of the aftermath of of um him having to live with that decision and of course things get more and more complicated the more you try and hide something absolutely absolutely yeah i mean it's the same similar principle to to one of our books uh, by harry fisher yes i killed her yeah. you know in the sense that a lot of it's written from the perspective of the person who's been Trying to hide the murder. Yes. Um, no, that's fascinating. I mean, it's difficult, though, that subject matter. I mean, if with my BBC, ex-BBC hat on, I mean, I did some stories when I was a, a news journalist before I went into sport in, in the 90s, and it was about traveller camps appearing all over the South Downs and the impact that had. And there was one particularly big one that set up in an area of outstanding natural beauty outside Brighton. And uh, it was really vexed even then how you approach these stories from the perspective of, you know, the majority view, the people watching, you know, get them off the land and shove them somewhere else would have been the attitude probably. And then you've got the, you know, you're dealing with the the, the community, trying to build communications with, with the people living on this camp, yeah. which is not easy. And then you've got the situation where you've got the authorities trying to move them on and trying not to use, you know, tear gas or anything else, which, you know, they have the, the you know the, some places have been broken up like that mm. if not worse and uh and nowadays dealing with that subject it'll be even more sensitive because we've moved on a long way as a society in protecting minority groups like the romani and i, and I tried community. not to go all rosy tinted but neither are they you know they 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 they're people there are good examples and bad examples mm -hmm. And I've always liked those shades of grey in character yeah. um, because quite often my villains will have a, a, a sense of honour that you, you wouldn't perhaps expect. And my good guys will be fallible, you know, in ways you wouldn't hope. So I like to play with that. I yeah. like to play with preconceptions of people. Mm. And I've always liked to do that, both in the Charlie Fox books and in... Um, 
uh, in the lakes uh, books. So it's always always fun. It's always yeah. a challenge. <laughs> did, and did, now, did, of course, I've started doing um, some new books um, with a, a character who is um, a, a fairly high-ranking policeman, but in the first book, he is he is on. Uh, leave on uh, for reasons you find out slowly during the book and um, somebody who a girl who could well lived on the street since she was 15 and could well be a complete con artist this is the so, Blake and Byron series this is the Blake and Byron series yes yeah I, I love that, that that juxtaposition you know putting two two characters together who um, you know find commonality but but initially coming from two different approaches completely yeah. Uh, yeah, that, it reminds that. me of the Chris Brockmire's book, um, The Cut, where it's an elderly lady who's just come out of prison for murder and a teenage. And they, you know, they find something, in, they have something in common. So they go off on this adventure together. And it's yeah. such a strange but fascinating relationship. The odd couple. Yeah. I mean, that, that's always a, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful established way to, to, to think of things. But um, how difficult did it feel to, to take on? you know, and create new worlds and new characters? To, to, or, or was it a case of you needed to feel refreshed by doing something new? Um, well, this is this is a series I was approached by Booker Chill. Mm. And they said, we, we would like you to write some new books for us. And I Brilliant. said, OK. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is the journalist background, you see. When you're offered a commission, it's very difficult to turn. You, you oh, say yeah. yes, yeah. Um, so, and, I, and although everybody says there are only a set number of plots, um, in fact, when I started writing the first Blake and Byron book, I had the premise that um, a girl would turn up 10 years after she disappeared on the day of her father's funeral. Um, and everybody is very surprised to see it because certain people are pretty sure that they killed her and buried her the day she disappeared. So the idea is, is she an imposter or is she actually yeah. who she's claiming to be? And it was only after I'd started writing that book and come up with the idea that somebody said, oh, that's like Josephine Tay's Brat Farrar, which was turned into a film called Paranoiac, I think, one of the mm. early roles of Oliver Reed. Um, so I watched the film and read the book very quickly to say, you know, oh, my God, is this am I writing uh, unknowingly following exactly the same mm -hmm. thread? And actually, no, there were enough um, differences that I could I could quite happily finish writing the book. So there are only so many ideas. And um, but the, the reactions of the characters you put into those situations almost have an infinite number of of yes. different outcomes so that's what's interesting I mean we we absolutely work ourselves to death trying to come up with plots that that you know are intricate and fit together and yet people will say I want to read the next Blake and Byron book rather than you know they they, they remember the characters rather than the plot yeah. it's the Charlie Fox books rather than than the individual stories that she's involved with so um it's always to me that's the bit I don't plan in advance yeah I mean I'm one of these people I like to have a, a framework but I don't plan the reactions of the characters when they get to those points in the story yeah and that happens on the page yeah 
So because by that time they've developed in a way that hopefully, you know, they are leading the story rather than you. But, you know, if you're trying to push them in the wrong direction because they just you just it won't go. Mm. you're trying to make them do something that feels out of character you just hit a brick wall yeah they're basically saying to you no i'm not doing that <laughs> yeah and i think that's that's the right way to do it. and you know it is it is about the characters no question because as you say there are a finite number of plots and plot points and um yeah. you know that sort of thing and you can change the settings but essentially you know someone some clever dick will always go and say well, that uh, that's an echo of such and such, which was written in 1853. Uh, it just happens to be, you know, said in an IT company or something like that. Um, yeah. But but you're right. What 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 really establishes is, you know, the, the fact that you want to you you empathise or you um, respond to the characters. I suppose is a better word because you know you don't have to like the characters, but you have no, to. No, you have just have to be engaged by them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 the great books are the ones which you know. You feel bereft when you've finished. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. You go through a period of mourning, don't you? If it's a really good book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what we probably, if we were to sort of name one characteristic, we would say when we're. Oh, with a submission. Yeah. 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 If I'm, if I'm feeling, uh, oh, it's ended. Well, there's two things, isn't it? If, if I, if I'm reading it every opportunity I have, there's something. Yeah. And then, yeah, exactly. If I yeah. finish it and think, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think you you know very, very quickly when you pick up a book, whether you like the sound of that writer's voice or not. Yes. And you know, true. within a within a paragraph, something about the rhythm of the way they use the words and cut the sentences up. And it's why I always say to people, read, read, either read your own stuff out loud. Yes. Or get somebody else to read it out loud back to you. Because when you're reading your own work, you will put the emphasis where you know it should go. But when somebody's reading it back to you, they can only read the emphasis as you've written it on the page. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, so, that's actually a good explanation. Yeah, yeah, that's that. that's the key piece of advice we always give to everybody who has not succeeded as a submission. That you know, often, well, I suppose it's not every piece of advice, but it, it is often the number one thing we'll say because I, they haven't, you know, the, the the way that the text flows and the voice. Is not there. But getting they someone else it. to read it, that's a step further. I yeah. really like that. Well, it's interesting. People have reflected to me, I mean, because you know, I've, you know, so I've done some quite a bit of narration in my time, um, that that I, as a narrator, will have found things and, and subtexts and, and, and um, interactions with the characters when I'm doing the voices or whatever it might be, that they hadn't seen themselves and that it's come alive in a different way. And, of course, it's the same when it's turned into a film, you know, I mean, we all know that most of the time uh, authors wince at what gets discarded or put in for the sake of a film, but nonetheless, you see it in a new perspective. So yes. uh, it's it's interesting what we were saying. We talked to Andrew Child at, at Bristol. I'm sure you did too. Um, yes, yes uh, about, Yeah, about how, you know, the new Jack Reacher series, how that, you know, the actor, I can't remember his name now, is brilliant, uh, inhabited the Reacher and how you know that has slightly changed the way that they now see when they're writing it or peter james said at london book fair he also said that you know now he he writes roy grace with john sim in mind yes and that's after umpteen books i mean he must have written 20 roy grace stories at least and here he is changing the way that he sees the character because of the actor that they itv have brought in but then on the other side mick heron said that he didn't have that issue no he doesn't he doesn't think 
It doesn't think of Gary Oldman when no. he's, he's writing the, the so character. So. Everyone's different, I suppose. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> well, I think it's time we really get to the, the, the nub of any interview. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's been wonderful to hear. I mean, we've, we've got so much from the, 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 the formal part of the interview, if you like, but really the bit that everyone's waiting for, the bated breath, is oh. what's going to come out of Rebecca's mouth. <laughs> Um, and traditionally, so I give it the the big, deep, rumbly voice. Okay, here we go. Rebecca's random question. Okay, so I have a, a couple of weird, um, I suppose you call them skills. Uh, one is I can walk with my feet facing inwards <laughs> and I can write backwards. I want to know, do you have a weird skill? Uh, where do I start? Um... <laughs> That's a good answer so far, yeah. Uh, I once took part in a rodeo. I can do dry stone walling. Brilliant. Um, what else? What else? Uh, ooh. Uh, I learned to do sword fighting. Um, yeah, I can astro-navigate. That's a bit of a, uh, an archaic skill these, these days, being able to plot your position using the position of the sun. Um, yeah. Handy with a sextant. You want more? <laughs> that's 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 very impressive and i just thought of another one for me glass blowing because i did a, a weekend glass blowing and it's a skill i've got it now i can i can make vases out of glass if i had all the equipment obviously but <laughs> that's going to be very useful in the post-nuclear but, but walking with my feet facing inwards doesn't come in useful ever no the only thing i <laughs> can't do that i wish i could do is is whistle like that mm. like, really loud mm, me too i no, can't, I do, can't that. do that and i'm no. gonna have to learn i can i can do type but not you know yeah, we need a we not, need a it's... we need a crime festival for um for writers where we just all gather and try and teach each other those those skills, Those skills yeah. you know. Well, I, I remember sitting um, in a, a restaurant, one Harrogate, learning how to um, shim padlocks uh, from Chris Ewan, um, oh, yeah. and that was I've I've watched James Swain do um, sleight of hand with dice, and yeah. that was okay. fascinating. Uh, so yeah, there's there's all sorts of stuff I can. Oh, I can make. Hang on, I have one in the drawer here. I can make self-defence items out of everyday household objects like this, which is a knuckle duster out of Ooh. the table fork. Oh, I like it. That's Ooh. art. That's artistic. Well, it's hard. I mean, <laughs> blimey. Um, wow. I mean, I've always, I've always gone into a fight with keys between my knuckles. Um, You've gone to break, into a fight? You're to break your fingers doing that. Yeah, probably, but you know, it, it it usually diffused the situation. I mean, this is road rage incidents and things like that. Or when oh I've been, my god, when I've been on a bicycle. Um, I mean, actually, I find a, a solid bike pump um, is quite useful. Um, actually, anything you can put in your hand that will reinforce your fingers, like a pen or a even um, probably shouldn't be shouldn't be saying this out loud. This is good. Uh, this is... Um, lip balm, little tube of lip balm oh, in yeah. the middle of your hand. Yeah. Oh, just to give you that sort of yeah, something to work um, with and keep you know, absolutely no, no, it would it would strengthen the, the power of your knuckles. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I've got some tough rings. <laughs> you have, yeah. I wouldn't then, want to fight if you. You're not, the last thing you should do is hit anybody with your hands if you can avoid it. Elbows and forearms and right, right. I'll bear that in mind. I'm trying to think because of if you if you break your fingers, which are very delicate, there's so many bones in your hands and your wrists, and if you're not used to punching people 
you know, mm. you're quite vulnerable. The number of people I've seen make a fist like that, and the first thing you do if you punch somebody is dislocate your thumb. Oh, ow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's that wouldn't be my first option. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right, well, we'll bear that in mind. What's your weird thing, then? Well, that's it. I'm just sitting scrambling. You must to... have something. Can you wiggle one no. eyebrow or something? No, I can't do the, what The Rock does. I can't do that. <laughs> I've tried for years to try and manage that. Um, so I've got more. Yeah. You have, yeah. No, you've got loads of wits. I'm sure there's something, but at the moment I can't think what it is. Uh, Can you put your feet in your mouth? No. You know how inflexible I am. (laughs) Takes me half an hour to get out of a chair. No, I'm feeling really inadequate now. I'm going to have to go away, and next time we speak, Zoe, I'm going to have to have something that I can... come up to you and I'll say, I can do such and such, and you'll say, what? <laughs> uh, you know, I can whip out... Inf- I mean, sorry. Oh, um, no, here we go. Here we go. We knew we would get smutty at some point. Um, yeah, something that you would find impressive. Uh, uh, it gets worse. I should warn does. you, I'm not easily shocked, but I am very easily amused. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the ton- usual tone of, the, of, say, of this the show. That's the sort of people we get on with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I've about. spent too long hanging around with mechanics, I'm afraid. Yeah, well, that, yeah, true. I mean, I, I, I used to work on buses and um, as a, a tour guide. And, yeah, I'm, you know, I, it was a, I know what it was your an skill is. What? Making stuff up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But making it sound like fact. So it, mm. it does it to me all the time. It'll tell me an anecdote about some celebrity or something. Yeah. And I'll oh, say, Really? <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah. This is I, the I, other I, one. Oh, <laughs> well, it looks like the one that's been stalking our cat. Oh, I'm sure you haven't sent it now. What's the name of this one? This is Tosca. Tosca. Oh, I feel so for the people listening to the podcast. They can't see the cat. No, we've 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 oh. met the cats, and um, Aki has been. Aki was sat next to me for ages, and I was stroking her, but she's disappeared again. Well, um, I, I feel inadequate in terms of skills, but yeah, making stuff up that, that, that people believe uh, to the extent that they get into guidebooks in Cambridge, that's been my skill. So, uh, <laughs> and it's a, it's a great thing when you're a journalist. Um, well, let, let's face it, we, we all of us do lie for a living. Yeah. Exactly. It's true. That's so true. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Zoe, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hobcast. We've um, really enjoyed it and got so much from it too. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Next time I see Zoe, I'm going to be approaching her with with due caution. (laughs) At least approach her from the front and not the back. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Thanks so much to Zoe for joining us and uh, we'll look forward to a a proper, you know, face-to-face conversation next time we see you. Uh, Right, well, we've got uh, a second guest to uh, squeeze into this week's show and that is Eliza Chambers. Now, Eliza is a newly sort of released into the world actress and dancer and uh, musical performer who has just finished her uh, studies, three-year studies at the Erdang Academy in London. But uh, I've known Eliza since she was tiny, actually, because um, she and my son Ben used to go to the same uh, nursery uh, you know, uh, group, a uh, play group, really, yeah. in, in Cambridge and in Hazingfield, the little village we are, and, you know... Um, uh, her parents and and my um, wife, ex-wife and I uh, were very close, and um, so. But I hadn't seen her for about ten years, and in that period, she'd fallen in love with the theatre. Yeah. Anyway, she was one of the first names that came to mind when I thought, well, we've got to cast a character for Silenced uh, called Jessamine or Jez, as she prefers to call herself. Now she's a troubled young woman who's got an alcoholic mother, an absentee father, who 
stumbles and starts having relations with gang members. The glamour of gangs in North London attracts her uh, with tragic consequences. So it needed to be somebody who could uh, sound a little posh compared to the other characters in the book, uh, who are perhaps more street, if that's the word. Um, But at the same time, try and sound like somebody who is trying to fit into that world mm. and she did a remarkable job it was yeah. her first narration project in fact her first professional job and um we will take you behind the scenes a little as well during this uh, brief interview with eliza but it was a pleasure to have her here well rebecca we've yes. had a special guest the last few days and it's not an extra cat no for once it just explain we have <laughs> random cats that let themselves in through the cat flap and, and and make themselves at home. Yes, twice now, two different cats. We've two had, different cats, we, so. exactly. You know, that's, that seems to stop. We've but had... this guest didn't come through the cat flap. No, no, <laughs> she no, she did. Did she? No, I've, I've totally screwed this up. I got tongue tied. Sorry, I have to start again. <laughs> we'll keep keep rolling. Just keep an eye on it. Well, Rebecca, we've had a guest with us for the last couple of days. And it's not an extra cat. For once, which is always a bonus. Yes. And they didn't come through the cat flap. No. Because we're talking about Eliza Chambers, who has been with us for the last couple of days, recording the part of Jessamine uh, for our audiobook production of... Silenced. By... Jenny Ensel. I knew that, but I was just testing. testing me? I was <laughs> testing you. Eliza, welcome to the Hobcast. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, not at all, not at all. And thank you so much for what you've done, because um, as we've discussed on this podcast many times, I'm always wittering on about how intense uh, narration can be. But how was your first experience of narration? I loved it. Yeah, my first time narrating. Um, So, yeah, it's been quite a few hours yesterday and then a little bit of work this morning to finish it off. Um, It went quite smoothly, I think we'd say. Um, But, yeah, my first time, so... It was just quite challenging for me to keep the character going, keep the accent going and keep the progression of the character, changing my accent, changing my voice as the character developed. Absolutely. And it's a challenging book because your character is 16 years old. She's living in Muswell Hill with an alcoholic mother. Her dad's disappeared off. She's been chucked out of her posh school uh, for attacking a girl with a pair of scissors, as we find out towards the end of the book. (laughs) Um, and she's fallen into the orbit and the gravitational pull of the Skull Boys gangster crew. And you're dating, your character at least, I'm sure you're not dating, um, the, the worst of them all, the most murderous member of the yeah, gang. Yeah, she's got terrible taste, hasn't she? Yeah, not great. <laughs> Jasmine. Yeah, that's a tough character to, to deliver, isn't it? Yeah, I think for me, it's about she's trying to fit in, isn't she? She's trying to fit in in this group where initially she didn't belong. So she's changing her voice. She's trying to fit in. She's doing what they ask of her and trying to please them. And her youthfulness, her vulnerability and her naivety is ultimately what I think leads to her downfall. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I think you deliver that perfectly. There is an arc to your performance and the depth of the tragedy at the end it, I'm honestly I was tearful by the end when you were delivering the last few pages so congratulations on that um how's the process been for you being in my studio 
with me cutting across occasionally <laughs> saying, oh, do that again. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed the process. Again, I didn't know what it was going to be like. It's my first time, but I really enjoyed how much direction you gave me. It wasn't too much, so you're allowing me to have that creative freedom and have my own input into the character, but you'd stop me occasionally and say, this is how I think you should deliver the line, and then it would change my intention completely, and then I'd re-deliver the line and then discover myself something in that character which perhaps I I didn't know before. Yeah. I mean, narration is different from acting in the sense you've got your stage directions in a script which tell you, you know, where you should be standing, what sort of expressions on your face, and then it's just the dialogue. Yeah. In this, you're having to tell the audience what's around you, all of the connective tissue that Jenny Ensor has put in there, all the descriptive stuff, and then the dialogue. So it's it's trying to switch between that narration voice, which is you talking to an audience to a perceived reader or listener and then uh switching into the character of Jezebel you know oh, through the dialogue yeah yeah I mean, yeah I not... definitely found that quite challenging so yeah because there's such a big difference from leading from reading sorry a script for a play to then reading a novel and changing your tones in your voice to when you're talking mm. to the reader and when you're talking to another character yeah yeah and I think the hardest bits for me are always the bits where you go into in a in a dialogue, you know, when you're chastising yourself for, for a decision, you, something you've just said. Oh, why did I say that? Kind of, that's another thing altogether. You know, yeah. that's, that's not talking to the reader. That's talking to yourself. Yeah. About what you've just said to yeah, someone else. It's the internal internal yeah. thought there. Yeah. yeah. I have a quick question for you, if I may. Did you enjoy directing? Cause, oh yeah. Uh, last week with Ricardo, who mm-hmm. played the part of um, Luke of Luke, and then this week. Have you enjoyed that process? It's not the first time you've had to do that in this context. Absolutely, for this length of time. Um, you know, again, it requires almost as much stamina as the performer um, because you're listening out for all of the things that might be done slightly better or differently, all the uh, little mouth clicks or something that might, a word that might have been swallowed, or indeed a deviation from the text that needs correcting. So there's a lot of that. But there's also finding that energy to be positive because what you want your performer to feel is the confidence you know if, if they're starting to doubt themselves and then you add oh, it, it'll come through in the performance and if you add it, to yeah. that with your you know if you niggle and you pick and you say the wrong things at the wrong time i think timing is the most important thing about direction yeah it's knowing how to to interrupt and there were a couple of times quite a few times actually where i stupidly pressed because if i press my mic key out here which allows me to talk to you it also means that I'm interrupting your performance. And there were a couple of times when you were getting the line right and I had it open. Uh, and yeah, we, had yeah. to do it, we had to do it again because, so, yeah. because you could hear the fan in the background or <laughs> the cat meowing or the, or the scaffolders strike. Yeah, she did come in a few times, didn't she? Oh, she was fascinated. She was fascinated. She loves you. <laughs> so you're very welcome. There's another the female in the house. She, she's got all these males. And, <laughs> yeah. I'm the, only other fe- I'm the only female except the cat normally. Mm, absolutely. So what we'll do, we haven't had a chance to do this, we'll, we'll just play a bit of how that works. How the interaction between you as a performer and myself outside at my desk have interacted and how we've worked together mum was drinking heavily in the afternoon she was upset about my father never visiting and not bothered to help look after me i didn't pay too much attention i didn't pay too much attention as she's often like that she went upstairs to her room i think we um i think just slightly change of emphasis because this this bit's you trying to get off the hook here with yeah. Elise. So, uh, Mum was drinking heavily in the afternoon. 
She was upset about my father never visiting and not bothering to look help look after me. I didn't pay much, too much attention. She's often like that. She went yeah. upstairs to yeah that coldness okay. yeah yeah. Mum was drinking heavily in the afternoon. She was upset about my father never visiting and not bothering to help look after me. I didn't pay too much attention as she's often like that. She went upstairs to her room. I stayed downstairs watching TV. Later, when I was going to bed, later when I was going to bed, I called out good night, but she didn't answer. I went into her room and saw her in bed, passed out with a piece of foil and a lighter beside her. There was a strange smell. I'm not too bossy, am I? No, you're not at all. I think you were brilliant. Okay, well, look, I'm not. I'm you might not... have a new career here. Yeah, I'm actually... <laughs> I don't. I don't know how you do it just by yourself because for me it was so beneficial to have that mm. uh, second opinion. Because um, otherwise, if I was by myself, I, I wouldn't pick up on the little mistakes. I wouldn't know. I'd just gloss over them and keep going, and then I'd have to unpick later. Yeah, occasionally things. I mean, you know, I you... could direct you. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> what an idea! Yes, yes, what a wonderful idea that is. I can't wait for that, you know. Um, well, okay, yeah, you, you, that's a fair point to raise because it is, you, that's why I think doing it solo, you know, you've been incredibly quick. You've got through a lot of text very slickly and very efficiently and nailed most of the lines first time. I mean, which, actually, we should which tell is you truly that. Truly admirable. When I told him how many pages you were reading, it came up to about an average of 95 pages, and you yeah. said. We're never going to get that done. Didn't yeah, you? yeah. Well, if it was me, I mean, for one thing, your stamina was amazing. Vocal stamina, physical stamina, and positive energy, amazing. If I mean, I can do three chapters a day. That's my limit. My voice is ruined by the time I've done that. But also, I'm exhausted because, as you say, I am listening to my own mistakes. I'm trying to do the direction thing, and I'm trying to do the performance yeah. at the same time. Um I have the one the one thing that I would say is in my favour is the fact that I know that I can pop in and fix it. Whereas if we need to fix anything that you've done or Ricardo's done or anyone else has done, we'll have to get you up here. <laughs> so that's not so Let's hope that <laughs> No, I don't think it's gonna be a problem. But um that's that's always in the back of my mind. But I think that you know, it's interesting. I I have worked not necessarily as a narrator but as a voiceover in a third party studio with a bunch of people the other side of the glass. Because normally, you know, you can see the director. Yeah. And the trouble with that is, is that if you do something egregiously wrong, someone in that room is going to go slap their head or do <laughs> yeah, some, yeah. some physical... But you'll see it in their face anyway, Oh, yeah, you, you so? will. You will. And and the really good engineers are the ones who just are completely neutral the whole way through. That was very good. Uh, let's just try that line again. It was, you know, and they won't even tell you what, what was wrong with it. And they'll say... Um, yeah, perhaps we'll just put the emphasis on this word and they'll, they'll keep it really, really neutral. But then you'll see the person who's paying for it pulling their hair out because <laughs> they're completely unprofessional in that environment. And every mistake is a slap in the face as far as they're concerned. And I did sense when we were working together, if you, say, stumbled on a line three times, you would get very frustrated with yourself yes, and start yeah. apologising. And I know that feeling. I yeah. normally swear. There's a lot of swearing <laughs> to come out of my recordings because it's, it, might, it might take me eight times to get a line right. Yeah. It's horrible, horrible feeling. I'm just such a perfectionist that I have to do it right. Um, and I know in myself, I knew when I'd done it wrong, like often yes. you wouldn't have to say, I'd just go back and just do it Yes. Um, because I know I have to get it right. Yeah. I think that's that's really admirable that you've got that ear. You, you, you sense it when you haven't got quite the, the rhythm right of the sentence. or Because... 
the nature of no, reading a, a novel is very different from writing a play because it's written for the ear, the play. And for this, it's written for the reader. And there's going to be... Every author does this. That always these bits where they get a bit carried away with the prose without thinking that someone's going to have to read a four-line sentence yeah. and, and try and find the pauses <laughs> and the breath points. But they were the trickiest, is yeah. the really long sentences. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think you captured the spirit of her brilliantly, and it's been a pleasure to work with you. Let's um, just put this in context, how we know each other. So you used to hang out with my, my two boys when they were little, yeah. when you were primary school together, <laughs> which is terrific. Um, so I haven't seen you in 11 years, and now you've gone through, you know, what, what, tell us about where you've been for the last three years since you did your A-levels and things. Um, so I've just graduated from drama school. I studied at the Erdang Academy, so I'm a graduate from a couple months ago, just graduated. And so this is my first professional job, so really happy to be working on this audiobook. And I'd love to do more audiobooks in the future, more voiceover. It's definitely something which I feel like I've got a bit of a bug for now. I enjoyed it so much. So thank you for having me for this opportunity. Oh, I really appreciate it's it. It's our pleasure. In terms of where you want to take the career next, I mean, it's it's that difficult period coming out of the academy and, and getting noticed and getting an agent and all that sort of thing. Where, where, how are things going? Yeah, so just auditioning for shows at the moment, hopefully, like, want to be on stage, screen. Um, but, yeah, I've had such an amazing time doing the audiobook. Well, it's been our pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, for being here. Yeah, thank you. For, for joining us on the Hopcast. That's Eliza Chambers, thank you. who is a star of the future. Uh, remember re- that name. <laughs> yeah, remember to name drop us when you get your first Olivier Award. Okay? <laughs> I don't want anyone to underestimate, sorry, underestimate the challenge of narration. It no. really is. It, it's a marathon. But to Eliza's credit, she was incredibly well prepared. She had stamina to burn. Because being in my studio, which is it's not airless, but it gets very warm, um, is tough. Yeah. No, she did brilliantly. Yeah. She looked as fresh as a daisy when she came out. I know. I know. <laughs> I wish I did because I'm, I'm always wrung out if I do three chapters. I know. Voices the, the ragged. Contrast, I hate to say it, but the contrast between what she was like at the end and what you are like at the end of a I'm, session. I'm, I'm emptied out, aren't I? I mean, yeah. I, you know, as she, she says in that interview, you know, it's to be a solo performer, also directing yourself is an extra additional level of challenge, which which I face when I'm doing my narration. But, uh, yeah, she made it look easy. Um, you know, I hate her. No, no, <laughs> she's, she did great. She did great. And, uh, you know, I, I wish her every success. Or we wish her every yeah, success. Yeah, of course I think, do, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not easy um, at the moment. She said that, uh, you know, the, the, the way that the bookings are going in terms of, you know, people coming out of academies and, getting jobs is a reflection of the way that society is trying to uh, correct diversity imbalances of the past by overcompensating now and so she's not had a great deal of traction yet with her career I am sure she will because she you could clearly see she's very talented she's so determined and dedicated yeah no well absolutely so any casting directors listen to this (laughs) you know you really will not go wrong if you uh, select Sam Eliza for future projects. So we wish her well. Well, uh, that's almost it for this week's show. We're going to look ahead to next week. Yeah, so next week. um, Well, I put a question out on Twitter because I thought I want to interview some publishers like us. Mm. So I asked, does anybody know any small independent publishers who fancy coming on the podcast? Now, we actually had three replies. 
So the first was a lovely lady um, called Amy Lee, who runs Quill Hawk Publishing in the US. Um, I'm going to talk to her for next week's podcast. Fantastic. Fantastic. Compare notes. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, we're always in search of uh, wisdom, insight and knowledge from anybody. Yeah. Uh, But really looking forward to it. It's always nice to speak to somebody from the States because it's just a different environment. and, and, And although we're largely writing in the same language with slightly different spellings it is a very different environment and um, market yeah and also she's not a crime publisher so that's going to be interesting yeah. as well sort of so it's a, the international dimension and the different genre we mm. well the week ahead um it's it's a busy one i'm actually off to to, to cardiff at the end of the week uh to take my son to a gigantic wrestling event at the principality stadium that's James, who is a big WWE fan, and I quietly am too. Uh, I used not to be a, quietly. No, no. Well, I used to be very much so in the sort of nineties, and well, we talked about this with Denise Mina when I was really into it, and we've talked about this with Vasim Khan as well, who, who loves his wrestling. So uh, you know, it's 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 a it's a sort of hidden passion for a lot of people in the industry. Um, but anyway. Uh, we'll, I'm off to that uh, for a couple of days. I'm also going to take a look at Cardiff Uni because he's uh, doing his A-levels next year. So he's looking at uh, different possibilities. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's not all play, mostly, but not all. And we've got, uh, I'm working, continuing to work on, uh, you know, obviously silence needs some editing and some other work. We need some other voices. And I'm going to be hunting down one or two from within the Hobet community, potentially. To, uh, we hope play. you're listening, Lynn version. Yeah, we've got you, got you earmarked <laughs> for something. I've been working on Sin by Malcolm Holding Drake, uh, and I will continue to do so, including today. It's taken a long time, I must admit, but that's, you know, that's entirely on my, <laughs> my, my bad. Uh, but, you know, it will be done. And, of course, we're seeing Malcolm very, very soon anyway. We because are, we're going yeah. to an event in Harrogate, which has sold out. Yeah, so, we so, so we're advertising it, it now. No, there isn't, no. But that's on the 17th of September yeah. at Harrogate Library. And it's got a stellar list of names, including our own Ollie Jarvis, uh, writer, uh, author for Hobeck of the brilliant Genesis Inquiry. But Jane Douglish is also there. And uh, uh, we've... Really looking forward to that. So we'll be bringing the podcast from there and from Bloody Scotland. I know, so we're going to be, be bumper, very busy, aren't we? A bumper issue that week. Uh, so that's coming around if we go to Bloody Scotland. That's the caveat. But anyway, so a busy week ahead. You've got tons on, oh, as usual. Oh, always, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, the cat is waiting patiently, and so uh, is your son to get back on the Xbox. They want feeding too. Yeah, well, I fed the cat. The, the kids need feeding. Yes. Yeah. Bacon bagels. Uh, that never stops. Okay, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Join us again next week, and uh, we're really looking forward to that episode, which will be 88, but this has been number 87, and I've been Adrian Hobart. And I've been Rebecca Collins. And we'd like to wish you a wonderful and, of course, creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website www.hobeck.net You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit